Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Hey, North Texas food fans, welcome to Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week, we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and we have a fun show for you today with food news and a discussion about the possibility of Michelin stars for Texas restaurants, and then a chat about drink trends, mostly liquor and bars, with writer Kevin Gray. It's going to be interesting, and it all gets started right after this. Central Market is really into food, like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make every recipe in the cookbook foodie or a my favorite recipe is reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're so excited to have you here for our show. For detailed show notes of everything we talk about here, be sure to visit dallasnews.com slash food. And if you want us to answer your questions or talk about something specific, send us a voice memo via our form at dallasnews.com slash food or email us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on, we'll be talking about bar and spirits trends in DFW, and we'll be talking about Michelin stars with Claire Baller. But right now, we have food reporter Sarah Blaskovich on to talk about food news and trends. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Erin. And so this week, the news slows down a little bit because a lot of restaurants take a break for the week, kind of like a vacation, like the rest of us try to do or want to do. And Sarah had a story about that this week, about how restaurants kind of take a break. Sarah, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it felt important uh, and special to tell the story of a few restaurants who choose to close entirely and let everybody take a break. Whether Mm -hmm. they take a vacation or a staycation is up to them. And I think the pandemic made restaurant workers especially tired, and we can all relate to that. But some restaurants, pandemic or no pandemic, have been taking a summer break every July. Right. This story was inspired by someone who's actually not in the story at all. The story was inspired by Stephen Piles. Mm -hmm. He's a longtime Dallas chef who does not operate any restaurants right now. And he always had high-end restaurants, and he always closed for about a week, maybe sometimes more in July. And this was something that his regulars knew and, you know, foodie folks and journalists like me knew. I don't think I'd ever reported on it, but I always thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'd talked to him about it over the years. And... The idea is just that people are traveling, usually in July, often to get either to the beach or to a place that's cooler than Dallas, Texas. And a lot of those customers would have been his regulars. They would have been butts in seats in his restaurants. Mm -hmm. So he would see lower sales. And he would just say, you know what? Everybody needs a break. We're going to shut the whole thing down. You know, our AC bill is going to be a little bit lower. And we're not going to, you know, have food coming in. We're not going to put anybody on the calendar and go do whatever you want. And other restaurants have adopted this 
idea, and, and I'm sure they do it everywhere, but it is rare in Dallas for restaurants to decide to actually close for more than just a day to give everybody a break. Right. So this story that I wrote on dallasnews.com slash food profiles some of those people choosing to take a break. Many of them are taking a break because they think their employees need a mental health uh, mm-hmm. time off as well, which is, like I mentioned before, partly related to the pandemic and just partly related to the fact that sometimes we all need a break. Restaurant people don't often get planned breaks. So Lucia is a beautiful example. They're off July 10th to July 19th. This is actually after the July 4th holiday because some schedule there's over the July 4th holiday, just thinking, well, we might have been closed that day anyway. um, And so maybe we'll extend it on either side. Lucia is actually doing theirs starting on the 10th because Bastille Day comes up in Oak Cliff and they close all the streets and it's a tough time to operate a restaurant when people with a reservation can't park and often can't arrive on time. And Lucia has nine tables. So it is small. It is hard to get into. Uh, They don't see a sales dip in July, really. People Mm -hmm. still want those seats. But they have chosen to give their full-time staffers full pay for those 10 days that they're off, which is also neat. A couple other places that are doing it, Urbano Cafe in East Dallas closes for a little break. Um, The French Room and the French Room Bar are closed for a little bit in July. Um, And Swiss Pastry Shop in Fort Worth Uh, has always closed sometime in July. So this is not really related to the pandemic. That place has been around almost 50 years. They just think everybody needs a break. And so they take about a week off uh, and then they get back to their regular scheduled programming. So as we all enjoy our own vacations, uh, myself included, it feels nice to think that these restaurant workers can also get a vacation. And Mm -hmm. many of them are paid for that time off. That's great. And are there any other times of the year that kind of slow down for restaurants that they they try to take a break then also? Erin, that's such a good question. Besides July, the other really slow month is January. And we, we all can understand why. The holidays yeah. are big, huge for sales. They can make or break a restaurant's year, actually. And then a lot of us in January, maybe we're saving money, Maybe we're cutting calories or trying to eat a little more healthfully. And restaurants tend to have shorter staffs because they just see lower sales. Now, I don't know of a lot of restaurants that actually close in January. The French Room and the French Room Bar is one exception. They also take a week-long holiday then. And this is an interesting point. They do that not only to give their employees a break, but also because they need to update the building. And the Adolphus Hotel is 110 years old. (laughs) So they take a week in January and a week in July. And when everybody's gone, I do think that they make some of those critical updates to a very aging building. Yeah, I feel like I need that with my own house too. Like I need a week just to like... (laughs) We all do. Fix stuff. (laughs) And so along those lines, you also had another story about Lone Star Donuts, which is also closing temporarily for similar reasons, but also kind of more extensive reasons. Yes. So Lone Star Donuts has been around 72 years, and I have a special place in my heart for old restaurants. I had thought that they were closing for good, and this is not right, according to their spokesman. So um, there's a sign on their door that says they're closing July 1st, quote unquote, indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, they are closing for the month of July to retool their business. This is a 72-year-old business that had a huge wholesale component. They would make pastries for Sam's Club and for Walmart. And the person I talked to said that business is not as robust as before because ingredients are so expensive right now. And that's hurting their ability to make these products for a great price for big box stores that demand 
that great price from them. Yeah. And so they're thinking about focusing more on this retail component, which is this sweet little donut shop on Beckley in Oak Cliff. Um, in the 60s and 70s, they had a lot of Lone Star Donut shops across DFW. Now they just have the one and Aww. they say they will return, but they are also taking this July break, but for different reasons. Oh, well, that's good. I hope they can retool and and come back. I mean, usually it's kind of interesting when a business, a restaurant has a big wholesale component. Usually they drop the retail to focus on wholesale. That's exactly right. Like Luna's Tortillas is the perfect example. They've right. been around almost 100 years. They had a Tex-Mex restaurant for, I think, a little over a decade. And the pandemic hit. The Tex-Mex restaurant struggled. They closed the Tex-Mex restaurant and said, we're going to go back to what we know we do, which is tortillas. Right. And Luna's, of course, is still making tortillas for 60 or 70 restaurants. Yeah. Um, so this is the opposite. And it's a great point. Well, we'll have to get down to Lone Star Donuts when they when they reopen. That's right. Their their retail side of things. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Stay tuned as Claire Ballard joins us to talk about the Michelin star system and why Texas has been left out for so long. We'll be right back. Central Market is really into food. Like when we say cheese, it's in 12 languages into food. Butchers, bakers, and sushi roll makers into food. We're talking so obsessive about quality you can shop blindfolded into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. This is Eat Drink DFW. I'm Erin, and we're back with Sarah Blaskovich and Claire Baller to talk about the Michelin star system. It's something I honestly haven't been paying a lot of attention to over the last years because Texas restaurants can't actually get them. But there's been more chatter about this lately within the Dallas culinary scene. And Claire wrote a story about this last week um, and got a lot of info and background on it. Hi, Claire. Hi, Erin. Can you talk about, you know, why the subject interests you and what you kind of learned when you were reporting on it? So talk of Michelin coming to Texas has kind of had new life to it recently because of the newly minted Michelin guide that Florida just got. So up until recently, Michelin only had guides in California, New York, Illinois, Washington, D.C., and now they just added Florida. And so they are now reviewing restaurants in Orlando, Tampa, and Miami. And this generated a lot of conversation in the local restaurant industry over the past few months of if Tampa can get Michelin's attention, <laughs> why not us? Why not Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio? I agree. Right? And so... <laughs> That there's been a lot of conversation around that. And so I wrote the story to answer a lot of the questions that we've been hearing from people about why isn't Michelin here? What will it take for them to come here? Um, and, and really kind of clearing up a lot of misunderstandings about how exactly Michelin works. So Michelin creates these guides um, in certain very specific um, parts of the world. And as I mentioned, they they only have a few here in the U.S. And for them to create a new guide, it's quite a undertaking and a pretty covert process. They like to keep things very close right. um, to the chest. So what we do know is that they work closely with local tourism boards to create new guides. They identify places that are destinations 
and that have very promising um, potential in the culinary mm-hmm. scene and that are exhibiting um, a culinary scene that is worth traveling to. And then they partner with local tourism boards who put up a good bit of money to cover the hard cost of establishing these guides. So that's how that process works in a short form. So the question that we've had here is, are there conversations happening between Michelin and the local tourism boards in Texas. No one will say definitively, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of guesses that that has to be happening for the very reason that I mentioned earlier is how can these cities in Florida have Michelin's attention, but not Texas considering all that's happening here in the restaurant scene. Yeah. I think it was definitely the Florida edition that made people be like, okay, hey, wait, wait a sec. You know, people come to Texas all the time to visit Texas. You know, I'm always traveling around Texas and I see a lot of international travelers visiting, you know, San Antonio, Austin, Houston, Dallas, all those places. So I think that's definitely been interesting to see. And as far as, you know, Sarah and Claire, the people you talk to out in the culinary scene, I know, Sarah, you've had a few people mention Michelin to you. Yes, there is a deep desire from a lot of restaurant owners for Michelin to come here, of course. They want Michelin to look at their restaurants and, of course, potentially award them one, two, or three stars. That Mm -hmm. brings people all over the world to their restaurant. And there are restaurateurs in this town who believe their restaurants are world class. Um, The other thing that sources have said to me a fair amount is they've brought in the James Beard thing. So I think that's worth mentioning real quick, which is that the James Beard Awards are all over the United States. And for a while, for years, uh, Texas was within a a large territory uh, for best chef. And so someone from Texas would not necessarily win. Mm -hmm. Someone from Arizona might win. Uh, because we were globbed in with a large region in the southwestern part of the United States. Well, for the first time, they created a territory just for Texas with James Beard. And so that ensures that every year some chef from Texas wins Best Chef Texas, which means that that chef and the other chefs who are nominated get international and certainly national um, interest Mm -hmm. and that their name is out there. Now, James Beard and Michelin are not related. And a lot of people have feelings on which is better or how different they are. But as Texas got its own territory and we were then sure that a Texas chef would get honored every year, the question became, now that we're putting a spotlight on Texas, why can't we put a Michelin spotlight on Texas? That's a super, super good point to bring up the James Beard, because it definitely seems like Texas has the momentum and the interest. And Claire, I know you talked with Leslie Brenner for your story, and she's currently a Dallas restaurant consultant and was the restaurant critic for the Dallas Morning News a while back. And she mentioned that the pandemic was maybe a factor in slowing down that momentum. Can you talk about that a little bit, Claire? Yes, that's a common thought that perhaps these conversations were already happening for Michelin to come to Texas, but that they were halted because of the pandemic. Leslie believes that that is likely the case, that these conversations have been happening, but everything was was paused because of that. And so as the world is getting back um, to a more normal state, it will be interesting to see if these conversations 
do come to light that they that they have been happening. So what would it take for a restaurant to earn a Michelin star? What do we kind of know about what Michelin looks for in restaurants? I know Sarah just reported about Dallas chef John Tezar, his restaurant Knife and Spoon in Orlando just received a Michelin star in Florida and he has knife restaurants here in Dallas. So is that sort of the caliber of restaurant we're we're looking at for Michelin stars or what are some other sort of requirements or qualifications? Michelin has a, a pretty strict set of criteria that they look for. And of course, there's more outside of this that they consider. But the, the five key criteria are quality products, mastery of flavor and cooking techniques, personality of the chef in the cuisine, value for money, and consistency of the food. They are very strict about what they are looking for. And this assessment is done by anonymous inspectors. And from all the people I've talked to, they say they have never been able to figure out who some of these people are. It is very discreet, very secret. And, um, but that's also part of the reason why people really value Michelin stars and value Michelin's judgment of restaurants because of the way that they handle their review process. Of course, it's something that a lot of restaurants want and aim for, especially here in Dallas. There are um, chefs and restaurateurs who are very eager for the chance to prove themselves and to be able to earn a star or stars. And, Another thing that I'm hearing is that people are are hopeful that Michelin will come soon because it will really kind of separate out the playing field a bit. Sarah, I know right. that this is something that you hear a lot from people that you talk to as well. There's there's this common um, phrase from chefs and restaurateurs of, we want to be the best in Texas. We want to be the best restaurant yeah. in Texas. And right now it's like, what does that mean? W- w- yeah. What's the barometer for that? That's kind of an easy thing to throw out there. Uh, if if there's not a big review system that is kind of determining that. We know, Claire, probably at least a dozen restaurateurs, you know, who are willing to compete. They're, yep. they're yeah. ready. They're saying, I think I am good enough and I'm ready for Michelin to look at me. Mm-hmm. And I loved a part of your story, Claire, where you talked to the owner of Tatsu. This is a new omakase restaurant. Uh, I went on my birthday and this place is really special. One of the reasons why they opened this restaurant in Dallas is to try to show Michelin that this is a special place and that he is serving special food. That is really noteworthy and interesting, especially if we get a Michelin guide. You know, if we could fast forward a couple of years, is that place and which other places are getting looks and or stars? So how would this really sort of change the Dallas dining scene to have Michelin starred restaurants here? I think it would really raise the level of the food that's already happening here. Restaurants who feel prepared for mm-hmm. Michelin, I think we'd see them step it up even more. Restaurants who maybe didn't even think that they cared about Michelin stars would right. maybe all of a sudden really start caring. And I think that we would see a lot of people coming here, coming to the state um, from other big culinary cities that are more expensive to live in and harder to operate and run restaurants in and bring their businesses here for the purpose of trying to earn stars here in an environment that might perhaps be a little bit easier um, to operate in. But one thing that we should note is that it is unclear if Michelin were to come here, if Mm -hmm. we would see 
a guide that would be a Texas Michelin guide that would encompass the whole state, or if we would see what just happened in Florida, which is a multi-city guide. So maybe that would be, you know, Houston, um, Austin, Dallas, and or San Antonio. That would kind of impact a bit in how the restaurant industry would change, you know, if if we would be looking at a a state guide or a multi-city guide. I love that point, Claire. I also think if we get Michelin, we need to keep our eye on the money. Mm. I'm curious who pays for this and how much, but even outside of that big piece, if or when we have Michelin-starred restaurants in Dallas, these restaurants can charge huge money for tasting menus. And this is important to me. Good food is worth paying money for, of course, but I think you can charge quite a bit more for a similar experience if you're a Michelin-level restaurant, a Michelin-caliber restaurant. So we should watch. We all think dining is already pretty expensive. It's a cinch to spend 100 bucks on a couple at a medium-nice restaurant in this town. <laughs> you go to a fancy restaurant, you can spend $300. You go to Carbone, a new restaurant, you can easily spend $500. Yeah. I think when we start having Michelin-starred restaurants, you could do the thing that you can do in San Francisco and in New York City. You can spend $800 or $1,000 for a couple to have dinner. And at least in Dallas right now, this is not how our dining scene works. Wow. That's that's a really interesting point. <laughs> yeah. It, it will be interesting to see how it changes. And it'll be interesting to see if this actually comes to pass. I mean, uh, another yeah. sentiment is that does Texas have what it takes to be able to cooperate amongst its cities to even oh get a bid in front of Michelin and do what it takes to get a guide here. Some people that I talk to say it doesn't look so great. You know, Texas kind of has a bit of a reputation for some inner city competition that makes it oh, hard so for a collaborative effort. We're going to argue about breakfast tacos until <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. one comes here anymore. Blue in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you guys. That's so interesting. And we'll definitely be staying on top of this topic as it develops. Stay with us. Coming up in our next segment, I'm going to be talking with food and travel writer Kevin Gray about what bars in North Texas are mixing up these days. That's right after this. Hey, listeners, this is Christopher Wynn. I'm the arts and entertainment editor for the Dallas Morning News. And that, thankfully, includes the food team that you're listening to right now. What I love about this beat is that food stories are people stories. Restaurants say a lot about who we are, our culture, and the health and well-being of our communities. If you want to help continue supporting this good work, it's easy. Just subscribe to the Dallas Morning News and become a member. You'll find a special offer just for listeners at dallasnews.com listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Eat, Drink, DFW from the Dallas Morning News. I'm Erin Bookie, and today on the show, we'll be talking with Kevin Gray, a Dallas-based food and travel writer who's written some wonderful pieces for us over the years. He's here to talk about bar and alcohol trends he's seeing in DFW these days. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me. Sure. So since this is your first time on the show, please tell us a bit about yourself and why you love covering food and drink and kind of what's a big focus for you right now. Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been writing about food and drinks for more than a decade. And, you know, I've always been a really curious and adventurous eater. So bridging the gap to drinks was pretty natural for me. Um, And I I got into cocktails when I was living on the East Coast in like, probably 2008 or 2009. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just saw that certain bars and bartenders treat drinks the same way that great chefs treat food. You know, they're so meticulous with flavor combinations and techniques. And that just really appealed to me. So I think ever since, drinks have been a personal interest of mine in my work um, and also just 
in my personal life, you know, I like to right. seek out great bars when I travel. I'll sometimes, you know, visit distilleries and, and I even attend a couple of different spirits festivals and conferences each year just to stay up on what's happening in the industry. That's so cool. Yeah, that's what I love about drinks, too, is just how kind of creative they can be. I think people kind of forget that, that the drink kind of stands alone, not just like an accompaniment to to their meal always. There's so many different drinks out there, too. Like there's thousands of wines and beers and spirits. So right. to lump them all into like the same category is just kind of foolish because there's just so much out there, which means that, that there's a lot to explore for people who are interested. Right. Yeah. And so let's talk about trends a little bit and what you are seeing in DFW right now. I know you kind of travel a lot. So what are you what are you seeing that DFW is sort of adopting? Yeah, sure. So I think um, one thing that's just been really fun to watch over the last several years is that Texas has really embraced, you know, craft beer first and then um, spirits and cocktails followed. But, you know, today, good drinks aren't just exclusive to cocktail bars. Now you can expect to drink well at bars and restaurants all all over town. I mean, you probably shouldn't order a a craft cocktail and expect it to be good at like your local dive bar or sports bar, but it's become increasingly easy to find well-made drinks around town. Uh And and I'd usually categorize that as like drinks produced with fresh juices and high quality ingredients rather than like cheap mixers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of it's just been driven by like exposure to new things, right? Like whether... It's through residents traveling to other cities and countries and experiencing something that they like or new people who have been moving to DFW in droves or even, you know, just social media, right, which is used effectively to spotlight trends and products. So I think all of that's really helped to contribute to it. What are, are there certain restaurants that you're seeing that are paving the way and being really experimental and things like that? Well, I still think um, a lot of like the the more experimental stuff probably does happen at the bars. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them like Midnight Rambler inside the Jewel Hotel. Yeah. Um, you know, Las Almas Rotas in, in Fair Park. Uh, I'm certain like certainly some great bars and restaurants in, in Deep Ellum and Uptown and elsewhere are driving that trend. But mm-hmm. a lot of your nicer restaurants these days, but there's just so many good restaurants these days where you can expect to get a well-made drink as they are starting to treat drinks in the same way as they treat foods. I know you recently wrote a great story for us about sort of the expansion in Mexican spirit sort of beyond Mezcal. I know we had huge tequila phase here in Texas, and then it was mm-hmm. like, oh, Mezcal is the new thing everyone is drinking. But now it seems like there are even more Mexican spirits that people are exploring. Yeah, so that's been really exciting. Um, you know, I think that for a while, it, this was everywhere was so vodka heavy. So it's oh, just right. been really fun to see people kind of transition into whiskey. And now mezcal and tequila are growing so much. Yeah. Um, there's actually a, a fun stat that the Distilled Spirits Council of the US, which is like a trade advocacy group, mm-hmm. um, according to them, tequila and mezcal combined are outpacing every other spirit category right now mm-hmm. in terms of growth, which has been super cool. But then beyond that, like you mentioned, there are these other Mexican spirits. A few are Satol mm-hmm. uh, and then Bacanora and, and Ricea. And so just to kind of quickly give a, a little backstory. So like Satol is made from a plant called the desert spoon Mm -hmm. and it grows primarily across Northern Mexico, um, especially the Chihuahua region, but it can also be found in West Texas, Southern New Mexico and Arizona. Okay. It's its own spirit category. It's not a type of agave. Right. 
So it's not like a subcategory of tequila. It's its own thing. Yeah. The flavors are very based on location and climate and producer, but it's often, you know, kind of green and herbaceous tasting, or sometimes it can be really earthy and savory, depending on who makes it. So that's been super fun. And then, you know, th there's even Mexican rums and Mexican gins. So it's, it's a massive country, right? And, right? and they really do produce a lot of spirits outside of just the ones that we always think of, like tequila and mezcal. Right. I know you've talked a little bit about vermouth and things like that. What are what are some trends you're seeing in that that area? Yeah, sure. So you know, vermouth, I think for a long time was just seen as an accompaniment to a martini or a Manhattan. Right. But now you'll see people are really starting to take a lot of care in the vermouths that they stock. So one good example is there's um, this new speakeasy style bar called the Bronco Room that's opening any day now inside of the chimichurri restaurant oh, in right. bishop arts chimichurri is an argentine restaurant and bartender james slater has created a menu there that features argentine and italian spirits and cocktails with a big focus on vermouth and amaro and amaro is essentially a category of italian bitter liqueurs mm -hmm. but it's super cool because the bar is even making its own vermouths and amaros yeah. so they're like really leaning into this trend toward bitter spirits and aperitifs and digestifs, you know, the things that we think about drinking before and after meals. Right. So I, I think, you know, just beyond cocktails, you can even really start to sip these different vermouths and amaros. And, and they're often very complex and herbal and floral. Oh. So it's super fun flavors that are now becoming so much easier to find locally. Let's move on to Texas distilleries. I know this is a huge area. You've covered this for us quite a bit. And I find the growth fascinating. Like North Texas has had a lot of craft beer breweries mm -hmm. and things like that, but the distillery scene seems to have grown quite a bit. Can you um, explain a little bit about what's been going on there? Yeah, for sure. So back in 2008, there were only eight Texas distilleries. Wow. So today, um, according to um, UT San Antonio, they put out uh, their Institute for Economic Development put out a study just last week that looked at Texas distilleries and their impact on the economy. Mm -hmm. And the number's gone from eight in 2008 to 190 Texas distilleries today. Wow. Yeah. So now it's like, this is a big industry, right? right. So it accounts for nearly $2 billion in revenues. It supports almost 5,000 jobs. So Texas distilleries now have the infrastructure and also the talent to really like not, well, we've already established the industry, but to really run with it. Mm -hmm. So that's just been kind of exciting to see the, the growth. And then What's been interesting to me is, you know, early on, a lot of distilleries start with vodka and gin okay. or even white rum because unaged spirits can quickly go from the still to the bottle, which means that distilleries can begin to recoup their investments quickly. Mm -hmm. But as time's gone on, we're seeing more and more whiskey across the state. Okay. This is a much bigger investment in time and money for the distilleries, but... Now we, I mean, I, I don't have an exact number here, but I would guess that maybe 50 distilleries are making whiskey, but that accounts for like hundreds of different bottles wow. since they often make uh, more than one. Um, and anyone who's interested in Texas whiskey could check out this book called Texas Whiskey, which is written by a local author named Nico Martini. Okay. So that's a great way to learn more about the category. But I think that's been super fun to see. And, and you know, whiskey and bourbon are, are just so big in Texas. Like Texas has always been such a massive market nationally for whiskey. So now we're starting to make our own. And, and we have for a while, you know, Balcones, They've been around for more than a decade, and they're one of the biggest American single malt producers in the country, and they're based in Waco, Texas. 
and and their spirits have regularly beaten you know scotch and irish whiskey in international competitions so between balconis and garrison brothers in the hill country we really do have a a pretty solid recent history of making whiskey mm-hmm. and it's just been fun to see a lot more distilleries kind of getting on the the same page yeah and is there anything um unique that Texas distilleries bring to the industry as far as like ingredients they're using or that kind of thing? You know, I I do think that there's often a lot of parity in whiskey simply because usually the grains are, you know, wheat or rye or malted barley. Mm -hmm. And uh, in bourbon, certainly corn is is the heavy heavy ingredient in bourbons. But um, one thing that's kind of interesting is a lot of Texas distilleries are really leaning on local grains, whereas sometimes the the really large players in Kentucky and elsewhere will use more like commodity grains that are shipped in from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So you do see a lot of like heirloom corn being used in Texas bourbons. Um, And I can think of at least two distilleries that are using something called triticale, Uh which is a hybrid wheat and rye grain. And so Blackland Distillery in Fort Worth and Maverick in San Antonio have both made Triticale whiskeys. And they're two of a very, very small handful of people even using that grain in America. So, you know, there, there is still room to experiment for sure. Well, that's awesome. Well, great. Thank you so much for being on and let's have some bonus questions for you. So what is your go-to cocktail? Oh gosh. Um, (laughs) You know, it varies so much based on season and mood and whatever, but I love a classic daiquiri. Oh. So like no strawberries and blenders here. Okay. Classic daiquiri is like good rum, fresh lime juice, and a little sugar. Okay, It's about as classic as it gets. Um, and I also really like a Negroni, which is gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth made in equal parts. Yeah. And if you want, you know what I've been really into lately is um, subbing mezcal in place of gin into a Negroni. Oh, okay. It's also just like... Uh, a fun little twist that's super easy to do. Yeah, makes it kind of like smokier or has like yeah. some depth Yeah, a little to smoky, it. a little savory. Yeah. Oh, that sounds delicious. And so what will you absolutely never drink? Like what do you not like at all? Uh, so I really have no interest anymore in taking shots. Oh, right. Um, but <laughs> I would say shots. any com- – <laughs> Oh, that for sure. But any combination of like liquor with like an energy drink, oh, no God, thank you. Yeah. Like there was a, as a time – when maybe that was fun, but these days I just, I don't need a Jaeger bomb in my life. Yeah. You know? That just sounds like a good way to die. It's, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just yes. a little too much. <laughs> yes. One step closer to death for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for being on. I always um, like to learn about drinks and you're just so knowledgeable and you have all of your stats and your research. And, um, <laughs> and I really, I really love that. So thank you so much for being on. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Next, we have a listener tip from Steve Davis. He shares his thoughts on his favorite local bakery. Hey, everybody. This is Steve Davis. I'm the TV analyst for FC Dallas, right alongside the great Mark Followell. And I discovered something recently, right after the pandemic. Uh, I started my coffee shop habit again, and there had been a little place I'd driven by. It's called Layla Bakery and Cafe. And it, it just turned out to be the greatest little place. And I was in there just yesterday, and I just noticed that they put up a list of local suppliers and other local businesses that they support. 
And I just thought about how after pandemic, I sort of redoubled my efforts to support local businesses. It's a great little place. It's female owned, great coffee, tucked into the corner of a little strip center near the uh, Skillman and Live Oak intersection. You guys should check it out. Layla Bakery and Cafe. Thanks so much, Steve. Layla Bakery is one of our faves also. And the owner really has an inspiring story that you can check out at dallasnews.com slash food. And that's all the time we have for Eat Drink DFW this week. Thank you all for joining, and I hope we've made you hungry for more. Also, we want to hear from you, like our listener above. We want to know what y'all are eating, drinking, trying, and loving, and we want your questions too. So fill out our form at dallasnews.com food, or email us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. We'd love to share your thoughts on a future episode. The show is produced by Natalie Kalmangoon. To stay up to date on every episode of this show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Erin Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.